Our Old Testament reading is uh, from Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Sebulim and Natalie, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and cursing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epilep 
ticks and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, Howard. And thank you to the choir uh, for singing that uh, song so beautifully for us a moment ago. A few years ago now, in uh, about 2008, the Baptist Union were trying to get to grips with the fact that some of their accredited Baptist ministers were simply not up to the task. Research had revealed that there were a disturbing minority of ministers who over several decades moved from church to church, wreaking havoc and destruction in each successive community before moving on to the next one. Most of these people never did anything that warranted their dismissal from ministry. Rather, they were just the wrong person for that role. In an attempt to address this, the Baptist Union published a document defining what core competencies for ministry should be. It included things like preaching, pastoral visiting, administration, leading meetings, leading public worship, using IT and the like. I have the list somewhere. And clearly, if a minister is incompetent in such things, they probably should get some training or find another job. But the problem was that this list didn't really address the deep-seated personality traits and flaws that characterised the serial church destroyers. It didn't address the subtle tendency to bullying, often disguised as pastoral care. It didn't address the empire-building mindset fueled by macho conversations in ministers' meetings where typically male ministers boasted about who had the largest church. I've been listening to a couple of things this week. Uh, I saw the BBC documentary uh, expose about Hillsong. It's on iPlayer. And then uh, just this morning, I was listening to a podcast from Christianity Today, looking at the Mars Hill phenomenon of Mark Driscoll. These names may or may not mean things to you, but in both cases, what's coming across is this disturbing tendency to put leaders on a pedestal and just allow them to believe they're God, basically. And core competencies, important though they were, did not address this tendency towards messianism in leadership. Well, against this, Ruth Goldborn, uh, our former minister here at Bloomsbury, gave a lecture at the Baptist Assembly in about 2008-2009, uh, which she provocatively entitled, In Praise of Incompetence. She starts by making it very clear that she isn't arguing that ministers should be incompetent in the essentials, but rather that Competence in these things does not equate to competence for ministry. So she asks, what is a minister? What is a minister for? Let me read a paragraph for you from her lecture. She says, being skilled and competent matters. Skills and competencies will sustain us through significant parts of our daily activities. They will allow our congregations the relaxation of knowing they can trust us and not worry about us or for us. But if skills and competencies define our ministry, we run the risk of fearing to go beyond what we know we can do. 
and we, what we are confident we can accomplish. And our activity and service become what we can do, rather than our openness to what the Spirit is doing through us. It is in our incompetence, our unskilledness, beyond who we think we are and what we think we can safely do. It is there, I suggest, we discover the country of the Spirit's ministry and the transformational activity of the everlasting love. So said Ruth, and I would want to say a hearty amen to that. Well, things have moved on, and to an extent, Ruth won this argument. These days, whilst competence still matters, there is also a recognition that there are other qualities of leadership that matter equally, if not more, and which cannot be measured in the same way. So those of us who serve churches through offering leadership and ministry are invited by the Baptist Union now to engage in a process called continuous ministerial development. It's not unlike what many of you will have experienced as CPD or continuous professional development in your professional contexts. And it engages with the intangibles as well as the tangibles. For example, it, it encourages us to have a spiritual director a mentor or a pastoral supervisor. It encourages us to read and to think, to take further training, to engage in regular processes of review and reflection and consideration. So some of you here today have recently been asked by either Dawn or I to share your thoughts into our ministries as part of this process. And this is all to the good and I welcome it. But just as Ruth pushed back in 2008 against the definition of ministry as competency, so I want to ask a question of the process of continuous ministerial development. And my question relates to a truism, which, whilst not always true, is true often enough for there to be truth in it. And uh, the truism is a, a, a paraphrase of a, a well-known quote about government. The truism is this, churches get the ministers they deserve. Not always, of course, and we can immediately think of exceptions. But I do think we also need to pay attention to the role of the church, to the actions and influences of those in the congregation, if we are to have any chance of assessing the significance of an individual minister's contribution. In large parts of the US now, there is a hire and fire approach to ministry with growth targets and short-term contracts. If you're the minister of a church such as that, it is certainly going to shape the way you lead and the way you minister. But even here in the UK, in less obvious and more subtle ways, congregations shape their ministers. Sometimes this is a glorious process of mutual growth that's as it should be. But sometimes it can be a process of destructive dysfunction as a minority of congregations grind down the successive ministers until they leave. Now, you may wonder why I've started with these reflections on the nature of leadership as we come to our text today from Isaiah. And the reason is this. Isaiah, in our passage uh, that we had read to us a few moments ago for this morning, creates a culture of messianic expectation around the leadership of Israel. He sets up a situation 
which leaves the people longing for the perfect leader, waiting desperately for God's chosen Messiah to come and sort out their mess. And yet their experience was that for leader after leader, from prophets to judges to kings, the nation found itself disappointed as leader after leader failed to deliver. No one could ever live up to the idealized standards of the great King David of old. And we're going to take a dive into this passage and its context now. And as we do so, I want to invite us to think about what it is that we expect from our leaders, whether in church life or political life or in your workplace or in your family system, wherever those leaders may be. Do we compare them against the great leaders of old, against whose standards they will never measure up? Do we constantly hope that the next leader will be the one to fulfil all our dreams and sort out all of our mess? And let us hold in our minds the possibility that sometimes unrealistic expectations might also be a factor in that person's failure to live up to their promise. And so to Isaiah. If you remember, and you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing from the prophet Elijah, called to the northern kingdom to renounce the idols that they were following up there, called to purify the religion of the northern kingdom, to tell them that they were to worship God and God alone. And then last week we heard from the prophet Amos, originally from the southern kingdom, but still called to the north, to tell them that religious purity wasn't enough, and that for their worship to be acceptable to God, it must bear the fruits of justice and righteousness. Well, we're moving on in the prophets, and today we get to the prophet Isaiah, about 50 years on from Amos, who we were with last week. And the location now has moved from the northern kingdom to the south, to the city of Jerusalem. And the reason for this is simple. The northern kingdom has by now been invaded by the Assyrians and largely is no more. So the historical backdrop here is that the northern kingdom has recently been laid waste, occupied by the Assyrians. The 12 tribes of Israel has been reduced to just the land allocated to the tribe of Judah with Jerusalem as its capital in the south. And David's city, Jerusalem and Solomon's temple in it still stand, but most of the land they had ruled is now lost. And Isaiah was prophesying to the people of Jerusalem at a time when they must have been wondering if it was their turn next for invasion and destruction. Would the Assyrians keep on pushing south to take Jerusalem and Judah, or would some other power swoop in and swallow them up? Isaiah's time was certainly a time of gloom in Jerusalem, with the dark clouds of war gathering on the horizon. A time of great threat and anguish of oppressive empires and frightening armies. And Isaiah can see that the writing is on the wall for the south, and much of his prophecy, certainly in the early chapters, is taken up with warning Jerusalem of a coming disaster. But then, here in chapter 9, 
we have this fascinating, compelling, surprising message of hope. One is coming, Isaiah said, for this people who are now walking in darkness. A child will be born, he said, who will be a true son of David. And so Isaiah created a hope that this coming king would re-establish David's throne, would succeed where all the previous kings since Solomon had failed, overthrowing Israel's occupying enemies, restoring the nation's borders to their fullest extent, ushering in a new golden age of peace and prosperity over which he would reign with justice and righteousness as a kingdom of endless peace. Well, newsflash, it didn't happen that way. It wasn't long before the Babylonians were the new ascendant power in the region, displacing the Assyrians, and they were the ones who invaded Judah, sacking Jerusalem and destroying the temple and carrying off many Israelites into exile in Babylon. But Isaiah's hope for a coming Messiah endured. It went with the Israelites into exile in Babylon. It took deep root in their psyche. It became part of their hope for God's future for their people. The people of Israel clung to Isaiah's hope for a coming idealized king, a new son of David who would do again in Israel what David of old had achieved in the distant past. You may remember a few weeks ago I drew a parallel between the way King David functioned for Israel and the way King Arthur functioned for England in the Middle Ages. Both are kings from the mythic history of their two nations, and the stories told about them helped shape the respective national identities for centuries. So King David's stories spoke to Israel of a dream for a united kingdom, stretching from the north to the south, from the Mediterranean in the east to beyond the Jordan in the west. And similarly, King Arthur's stories spoke to medieval England of the importance of the values of chivalry in shaping the nation of the English-speaking peoples. But there is another parallel between the mythologies of King Arthur and King David, and it speaks to our passage today from Isaiah. There is a prophecy that is in the Arthur legend that he will one day return to save the people of England in their hour of greatest need. And similarly, what we find here in Isaiah is a prophecy about King David, that one day a child would be born who would be the true son of David, who would take his rightful place on the throne of his ancestor. Messianic expectation, whether at a local or a national level, can be a compelling story to live by. To return to the podcast I was listening to this morning, how did Mark Driscoll gather a church of 15,000 people in about 10 years? And part of the answer is they thought he was, in essence, the next Messiah. And they followed him because he made them promises that in the end, it turned out, he was not equipped to deliver. Messianic expectation 
keeps people hoping that salvation is just around the next corner, that it will be the next leader who will be the one to usher in the new age. And so we come to our second reading, to the story of Jesus going to live for a while in Capernaum, in the region known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Did you notice that Matthew specifically mentioned that Capernaum is in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali? The same two tribes mentioned by Isaiah at the beginning of his messianic vision. There's something going on here and it's worth exploring. I've said before that in these biblical narratives, geography is never accidental. The relationship between the people of Israel and the land of Israel was so intertwined that land and people were inextricably linked. So for Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was the land Israel had just lost to the Assyrians. It was the land in the north. And so for Isaiah, Zebulun and Naphtali were the land of darkness, the land of anguish, the land of oppression, the land of contempt. And it was to the people who suffered in Zebulun and Naphtali that Isaiah addressed his message of hope, that one day there would be no more gloom, that they would be glorious again, led by a bright light that shines in their darkness, living with joy and rejoicing with the symbols of oppression broken and burned. So, when Matthew says that Jesus goes to live there, it's no accident. Matthew has Isaiah's prophecy firmly in mind as he describes the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. He has Jesus move into the neighbourhood of the suffering and the outcast peoples. He has Jesus locate himself in Gentile territory, Galilee of the Gentiles. Even before calling his first disciples, Matthew shows Jesus enacting the truth that his ministry will be for all nations, for those who sit in darkness, for those who live under the shadow of death. And the early followers of Jesus found the messianic hope articulated by Isaiah of old to be helpful to them in understanding what they wanted to say about the life and ministry of Jesus. And we see this as Matthew quotes directly from the Isaiah passage that we had read, locating Jesus as the one who fulfills the long-awaited messianic expectation that had come down through Israel from the time of Isaiah, through the years of exile in Babylon, through the years of the centuries of occupation under successive foreign powers, to the time of Israel under the Romans in the time of Jesus. That messianic hope had been kept alive, and Matthew says it is fulfilled in Jesus. But there is a significant difference between the way Matthew and the other gospel writers portray Jesus as the fulfillment of messianic expectation and the way Isaiah had set things up six centuries before. Because clearly, Jesus was not the political Messiah that Isaiah had longed for. When Jesus went up to Jerusalem, it was not, in the end, to take David's throne, to overthrow the oppressor, and to re-establish the kingdom of Israel. 
it was to die at the hands of the invading army of Rome. But nonetheless, Matthew and the other early Christians saw a deeper truth in Isaiah's words, which spoke to them of the hope that entered the world at the birth of Jesus. Not a nationalistic hope of restored borders and defeated armies, but a hope that reached beyond Israel, beyond the Jordan, to encompass all people. A hope of sins forgiven, of broken relationships restored, of a vision of humanity where all are equal and all are equally loved by God. A hope of an end to the power of death to dominate people's lives. Isaiah's vision of a son of David coming to Israel becomes in the hands of the early Christians a far more wide-ranging hope of a world transformed through the birth of Jesus. Those who hailed Jesus as the Messiah had to learn a new way of understanding their hope for the future. They had to let go of their unrealistic expectations, their unfulfilled dreams of nationalistic restoration and political success. They had to realise that their Messiah would not look like they thought he would, and he would not act as they wanted him to. They had to relinquish their deeply held hopes and embrace instead a Messiah who came to suffer, to die, to embody the incompetence of failure. Because it is in that moment of ultimate vulnerability that God is finally and most fully encountered. It is in the birth of the baby Jesus that God is incarnated to humanity and there is very little more frail than a tiny baby. They are utterly incompetent in the world. And so it is the birth, life and death of Jesus that brings into being the definitive moment of God reaching out to touch our lives in every area of our existence from birth to death. Bringing healing and restoration and transformation. So God does not come in Christ to fight all our battles, to defeat our enemies and give us the gift of happily ever after. Rather, in Christ, God draws alongside us. In Jesus, God moves into our neighbourhood, meeting us in our failure and our sin and our incompetence, forgiving us and drawing us into a new relationship of acceptance and love. But it is also in Jesus that we find the fulfilment of Isaiah's hope for a reign of eternal peace, where the justice and righteousness longed for by Amos and prophesied by Isaiah become a reality in the lives of those who find their reconciliation with God through Jesus. And so as our eyes now turn towards Christmas and over the next few weeks journey through the time of longing and waiting that is the season of Advent, 
we turn our thoughts to what it means for us to proclaim Christ's kingdom of peace in a world of conflict. What does it mean for us to long for peace in a world of war? What is the point of us having a peace candle symbolically, although accidentally not lit today? Does that small glimmer of light really shine in any meaningful way on those who live in the land of deep darkness? The reality of history is that warfare never really ends. It just moves elsewhere for a while. But in Christ comes the gift of peace. And peace is an ongoing task. Peacemaking is something that has to be worked at. It requires commitment and faithfulness and just hard work. Whether we're talking international peacemaking in conflict areas like South Sudan or Afghanistan or Palestine or any of the other places that people suffer the harsh reality of war, or whether it's peacemaking between ourselves, doesn't happen easily. But in Christ, we are brought into a peaceful relationship with God. And like the stillness at the centre of a hurricane, the peace that we have with God, the peace that we have with God, is a still centre in the midst of a chaotic world. We carry within us, each of us, the lit candle of peace. And that light does brighten the world because it is the light of Christ within us. As we learn to live peaceably with others, the light that guides us also shines on those who still walk in darkness. It is as we follow the path of Christ, responding to the call of Christ on our lives, that the light of Christ shines in the world. The peaceful kingdom may not be yet fully realised, but it has begun, and it is with us here today, and it is within us. As Isaiah put it, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. So, This morning, I thought we could share a a classic prayer um, using words attributed to St. Francis. I invite you to consider how each of the ideas expressed in this prayer apply to your own personal situation and to our life as a church community. You might also want to consider how the words of this prayer guide our thinking on how God's working in the world and, as Simon expressed in his sermon, our responsibilities. So after each line of the prayer, I'll pause for a few moments, leaving us with space to reflect and find our own way to make a connection with God. Let us pray. Lord, make me a channel for thy peace. That where there's hatred, 
I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted. To understand than to be understood. To love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, faith and joy in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, creator, redeemer and sustainer, be with us all today and forevermore. Amen.